0: You will not have your cake and eat it too. Welcome to Charlotte Mason says I'm John Chindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series.
1: So we, Put out a poll on Facebook asked for y'all's input and we got a lot of responses we did we got forty eight people to give us a vote
0: which is pretty impressive because we only have two hundred and fifty some people that that on facebook on Facebook that have liked us so that's a solid that's a solid amount of folks that follow us to to uh, respond to that, to
1: take the time and respond. So, thank you, everybody who did respond. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Thank you so much for that.
1: We have the we gave the option of book one, which is home education, kind of a more practical, or book five, formation of character. We are evenly split, twenty four votes to twenty four votes. <laughs> you guys were supposed to make the decision for us. You failed, and that didn't happen. <laughs> so we still don't know which book we're going to do.
0: No. <laughs> we,
1: we need to talk about it some more. And
0: Well, and every time we talk about it, I feel like we lean the other way. Yeah. We'll talk about it. We've leaned like, both yeah. ways. Number six would be the, the best one to go to. We should do we that. Didn't,
1: number six was not enough. Number option.
0: five, whatever. Number five would be the best one. Number six is sitting on the table. That's what I was thinking. Number five would be the best one. And then we'll talk about it the next day. We should really do number one. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's just back and forth and back and forth. Because I think both are good options.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do we go nitty gritty how to for under age nine, or do we go more philosophy and big picture stuff? Well, Honestly, I don't know what Formation of Character is about. But it's a much bigger book it is a much than bigger number book. one is.
0: It's a very thick book.
1: Either one's longer.
0: Either one is longer. And there's there's pros and cons to either approach. I mean, the, the pro for volume one is that we're homeschooling two children right now, ages six and seven. And then we've got three more little ones on the way
1: so it's extremely ap- applicable
0: it's extremely applicable right now but it will also be extremely applicable next year and the year after that and the one after that so do we do it now do we do it later it it will be applicable the benefit to the book 5 is that it will be applicable always yeah so the the question is: Are we are we wanting to talk more uh, theory and philosophy, or do we want to get into the nitty gritty? And the other thing is: is there are a lot of people who have already done studies on Volume One, which is why we initially went to Volume Two because there's very little out there for it. And so same, that's same with number five. And same with number five: there's very little out there for it. I don't think it has a uh, an audio recording, so that's another project that we would undertake is to read Volume Five. And so I, I don't know. I don't know where we go and which one we do.
1: And now you guys understand why we can't make a decision. <laughs> Our circular logic leads us back both ways.
0: Yeah. So I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what we end up doing. We need to make a decision here relatively soon so that we can start uh, prepping and, and talking about it and getting people excited because it's a very exciting thing i'm i'm kind of excited to to finish up the book that we've been reading and discussing cuz i feel like that's a huge accomplishment to read through one of these books they're they're very thick
1: well we're at the point that i get to in in honestly any type of book like this um whether it's you know the last child in the woods or the charlotte mason books or the wonder of boys or boys and girls learn differently I get to about three quarters of the way through and lose my steam. Mm -hmm. And that's right at about where we're at right now. I just go, okay, well, I've heard what this book has to say and I'm going to be done. But we get to plow through it and finish it up.
0: And and go the distance.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of exciting.
0: You'll actually read a book from front to back.
1: I do that a lot.
0: (laughs) I know you do. Is there anything else with social media that we wanted to t- that we wanted to talk about? Probably. Yeah, I think the biggest thing to say with social media is thank you, anybody and everybody, for, uh, for liking our stuff, for commenting on our stuff, for recommending us to people. Uh, the biggest way that we've grown as a podcast is word of mouth, people mm-hmm. sharing our stuff. So if you think that what we're doing is worth listening to and if you think it's valuable for other people – the best thing that you can do is share it. Tell someone else about it, be it on Instagram or Facebook. If you follow us on Twitter for some unknown reason or Pinterest, because we post to there too, Uh, you know, wherever, wherever we post or wherever you post, if you're on some platform that we're not, uh, you know, share our stuff. That's the, that's the best way to get our, to get our, our, uh, our info out there.
1: Oh, and as a podcast, which Every single podcast I've listened to has said this. Go to iTunes and give us a review.
0: Five stars.
1: Give us a rating and a review because it helps our podcast. uh, What is it? What's they say?
0: Statistics.
1: Um, It really helps us get higher in Apple's search results so that we can reach more people with this information. That
0: is true. That is true. When you search things on the Apple uh, I have on heard iTunes, that so many right? Times it's kind of annoying.
1: so many podcasts,
0: but it's it's absolutely true because the more reviews you have, and the higher reviews you have, you get bumped up over other podcasts with the same material.
1: Leave us a rating, review in iTunes,
0: <laughs> or just share us. Because honestly, word of mouth, in my opinion, is way more powerful than a review. And we'll edit that down to something.
1: You You will edit it down to something because you are the brains behind the editing. Oh, I need a the editor. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it wouldn't be the brawn, the brains and the fingers?
0: I mean, I have to push my fingers down real hard on the buttons to make it work.
1: That would be fingers.
0: I have to move my mouse. It, it makes my arm tired. It doesn't make my arm tired. <laughs>
1: we're talking about (laughs) truthfulness here what is truth
0: right so on to the actual show
1: chapter 19 what is truth moral discrimination required by parents
0: so I thought in her opening statement here she says she has about a paragraph that seems super familiar to right now in America, but also from what I hear any number of other places. So I'm going to read this because I think it's, it's of extreme value to, to us as parents, to us as, as homeschool teachers, but also to us as people in a nation. So she says, he who is without fear, is commonly without falsehood. And a nation brought up amid the chivalries of war dares to be true. But we live in times of peace. We are no longer called on to defend the truth of our word by the strength of our hand. We speak with very little sense of responsibility, because no one calls us to account. And so far as we are truth-tellers, we are so out of pure truth-of-heart and uprightness of life. That is, we may be as a nation losing the habit of truth to which the nation's childhood was trained. And as I, as I read through that and as I hear her saying that, all I can think of is President Trump saying fake news and the outrage culture that we have right now and people being willing to spew Whatever things they believe, whether they be true or not, and be willing and ready and able to follow anything if it sounds good. And people don't fall on truth. They they just go with their feelings and their emotions and whatever fits the narrative.
1: Because truth is not valued.
0: Because, like she said we just like she did we live in a peaceful society and yes I, I know that we have troops overseas and we have we're we're fighting various fights across the globe but we're not a nation at war like we have been in, in times past
1: yeah what's interesting is that this was this was put out in 1904 world war 1 was just around the corner yeah and it did happen in her lifetime um it was fourteen nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen and she passed away in nineteen twenty three i believe okay and and it has been talked or written about how her her not her philosophy but kind of her outlook on certain parts of her philosophy changed from when she first wrote mm-hmm. home education to when she wrote um volume six, a philosophy of education, which was published posthumously. And it's interesting to see how war changed her perspective. Yeah. Not in her belief that this was a fitting and right way to educate children, but the degrees to what worked and what didn't, mm-hmm. and and how how that affected her. And and war changes people. Mm-hmm. War changes the society. And that was war on their on their territory on their on their country mm-hmm, and so maybe she would have written this paragraph differently twenty years later she might have
0: she she, she very well might have
1: and and maybe that kick-started a secondary wave of truthfulness or a a, a generational wave of truthfulness sure where you, because it mattered now it matters to you mm-hmm and not saying that war should be the catalyst to tell the truth as a as a country as a nation but it 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 forces the necessity of telling the truth
0: yeah well war is a catalyst of a lot of things and so i can see truthfulness in your speech being one of those things that that comes to the forefront of value again
1: i heard a a phrase in some article that we are currently in a uh, civil cold war in the United States. Yeah.
0: I've, I've heard that said a couple of times.
1: I I heard it like within the last week or so. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? And then as I've been thinking about it, you know, it cold war was a standoff essentially. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: it's a standoff within our country.
0: It absolutely is. And we see little pockets of violence break out. Uh, the the Antifa and Proud Boys stuff that happened in Portland last week. Uh, no, let's I, didn't, see. I
1: didn't read into that. I didn't want to.
0: No, that's that's fine. It's just it's a thing that happened and things got violent and people did weird things.
1: Well, now, honestly, we're close enough to that now. There were people from here that went to Portland for that. Mm-hmm. And then going back with the tensions and... Uh, Ferguson, mm-hmm. the tensions and and violence and atrocities that have been committed in the recent past.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, not to get too political, but but yeah. So I, to mo- to move back to what she's talking about, she's talking about truth, and so uh, that that is. I feel like that's where that's what she's looking at as the problem is that we're not a nation of truthful people. And so so she concludes the section by saying the work before us is to bring up our children to this higher manner of truth. We no longer treat this or that particular lie or bit of deceit as a local ailment for which we have to only apply the proper lotion or plaster. We treat it as symptomatic as denoting a radical defect of character, which we set ourselves to correct. She's saying lying is not good, but lying is symptomatic of something that's so much worse than lying. Yeah. And and as parents, we need to set ourselves to the work of uncovering that character defect in our children and fixing it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and helping them to grow to grow into good character,
1: to grow into that the higher truth of a high, or truth of a higher quality yeah this next paragraph kind of confused me uh it took me a while took me a couple of reads to to un, to kind of i think understand it it ends with but it's the work for the trained expert rather than the busy parent or teacher and i was like wait 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 <laughs> wait i thought this is what we're supposed to be doing is is doing this and it's talking about examining a child under a moral microscope recording our observations formulating opinions what i got out of this is that the experts have done this they've done the research they've done the studies they've they've done the surveys we need to learn from the work of the experts we're not to do those studies and figure out what it is we're to learn from that
0: well i think that's what she moves on to. She says we, uh, in the next paragraph, she says we cannot afford to discard the wisdom of the past Mm -hmm. and begin anew. And so I think that, I think that's part of what she's saying there. I think the other part of it is that she, she says we're not trying to solve the greater problem of all children who lie. We're not trying to come up with the cure for lying for everyone. We as parents need to focus in on our children. Okay. And let someone else deal with everyone lies and how do we fix everyone
1: that makes sense
0: so I, th- I think you can take it bo- take it either way and I don't think you'd be wrong either way
1: or we could take it both ways
0: no, only one or the other, not both you can't have it both ways you will not have your cake and eat it too want a bet it's not sufficient to bring unaided <laughs> common sense and good intentions to this most delicate art of child study Yeah, I totally bet. I'm not betting. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, she says, you know, people have people have looked at being truthful in the past and we're not trying to reinvent the wheel.
1: Oh, I was going to define truth before we started everything.
0: Actually, that that probably makes a lot of sense because the question at the start is, what is truth? So what is truth?
1: Truth, very helpfully, is the quality or state of being true. (laughs)
0: Uh, you're not supposed to define something by using the same word
1: true is in accordance with fact or reality accurate or exact loyal or faithful
0: okay so we're not so so there are three definitions there right yes so the first the first definition was
1: in accordance with fact or reality
0: the second one is?
1: Accurate or exact.
0: And then the third is the quality of?
1: Loyal or faithful.
0: Loyal or faithful. So we're not talking about the third quali- the third definition. We're talking more about the first two definitions there.
1: In accordance with fact or reality. Side note there. So then she says, you know, we need to use the studies and wisdom from people. But at the same time, the child is a human being. Immature, but yet perhaps a human being at his best. Who amongst us has such gifts of seeing, knowing, comprehending, imagining, such cap- capacities for loving, giving, believing as the little child in the midst? And that brought me to Matthew eighteen, where the disciples came to Jesus, said, "Well, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" And he called a child to him and put him in the midst of them, oh, and said, yeah. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven.
0: Children know that, they, that when among adults, they aren't the greatest.
1: Well, and they have the capacity for belief.
0: They do. They absolutely do. I was listening to Ben Shapiro... Joe Rogan or Bill Simmons. (gasps) They, one of them interviewed a guy who was talking about child development. And he was saying that there's a, there's a point that children get to when they start understanding things outside of themselves, they get to a point where they say, okay, you're a different person than I am. You think differently than me and you know, different things than I do. It was Joe Rogan because then they talked about monkeys and evolution, which is not a thing Bill Simmons would talk about. It was a Joe Rogan podcast. But I don't remember who he was interviewing. But anyway, (laughs) the the guy talked about the fact that his kid lied to him about a thing. And he said, I wasn't even mad. I was so excited. And then I felt weird (laughs) because I was excited that my child lied. But the reason he was saying is that he was excited that his child lied. His child didn't tell the truth because that meant his child had reached that age of understanding that you know different than I know. And if I tell you something, you will think that that's true. Even if it's not because we know different things. Interesting. Yeah.
1: In the matter of lying, there are one of two theses. Theses. Either the child is born true and you must keep him so, or the child is born false and you must cure him of this. Spoiler alert. She says neither of those are right.
0: (laughs) The interesting thing I thought is, is it seems like she's already said earlier, uh, it's not sufficient to bring unaided common sense and good intentions to this. So it seems like she's saying that that common thought process is the the common sense approach to children and lying, mm-hmm. but philosophy tells us different.
1: Philosophy and wisdom of the ages,
0: right? She says uh, it shows us that both of those positions are wrong, and that a child uh, backing backing oh, up. Sorry,
1: to you know, popular opinions at the, her, her time is leaning towards a child's born true, and so we take it take tr- absolute truthfulness honor of children. A little too much for granted. If you want them to be true, of course you have to treat them as true and believe them to be true but at the same time, don't be an ostrich. But the generation before they were more likely to accept that their children were born false. And so if they were born false and you assume that they are born false, well then they're going to become false. So it was it was interesting to see how she traced uh generationally, mm-hmm. the the general trend of truthfulness. Mm-hmm. So go ahead with the what's real.
0: Uh, a child is born neither true nor false, which is what the philosophy teaches. He's born absolutely without either virtue or vice when he comes into the world. He has tendencies indeed, but these are no more either virtuous or vicious than is the color of his eyes.
1: Well, and that goes back to what she was talking about, honestly, I don't remember right now, in the early parts of this book, where the, the tendencies and the, the ways that children act.
0: What did she call it? She called it something specific.
1: Oh, heredity.
0: That's, what she, that's the word she used. And
1: Dr. Maudsley in Chapter 3.
0: Oh, that was all the way back to Chapter 3.
1: Yeah, like way back when.
0: That was when she first brought it up. She's talked about it numerous times since. But yeah, that's where when you're born, are you born with all of your tendencies and wants and desires and virtues and vices intact and in place, and there's no way to change it? Or are you born a blank slate ready to be written upon? And everything will come from from that point. And she kind of goes back and forth.
1: Well, it's principle number two. They are not born either good or bad, but with Mm -hmm. possibilities for good and evil.
0: Right. And so there's a little bit of that that is nature, a little bit that's nurture, and a whole lot that is learned.
1: Throw an education in there.
0: Throw an education in there. Because she goes on to say, she says, the child born of a family which has from generation to generation been in a subject position may have less predisposition to truthfulness than the child of a family which has belonged for generations to the ruling class. She's saying that based on where you're born and the family you're born to, you you may have a predisposition one towards one side or the other. And the question is, well, is that because of your heredity? Is that because of the, the environment in which you grow up?
1: Well, I think it's, again, going back to the contention of you know your father was a thief therefore you are a thief Mm -hmm. and she says and and she she says no to that she Mm -hmm. says no that is not genetically passed along there might be a genetic predisposition or a tendency towards thievery because that's how you're brought up Mm -hmm. but that is not what you are born with
0: right and so i think it seems like this is where she's she's kind of She's she's walking the knife edge here saying, yeah, it's heredity. Yeah, it's also not heredity. If, if your child is growing up in a home where everybody lies, your child's going to learn how to lie. Yeah. If your child is growing up in a home where everybody tells the truth, your child's going to learn how to tell the truth. But that doesn't mean that a child growing up in a house where everybody lies won't learn to tell the truth and that the opposite is also true. A child growing up in a home where everybody tells the truth doesn't mean that that child will necessarily always tell the truth. Yeah. So we have to work on it.
1: So is lying elemental or secondary?
0: Well, she answers that pretty quickly. She says lying arises from secondary causes.
1: Elemental things are ambition, avarice, vanity, gratitude, love, hate. But lying comes from secondary causes. Which makes the treatment more difficult.
0: Because you have to figure out why. Why are you lying?
1: What that elemental cause is. Yeah. Is it a weak place in character? Is it a defect of education? Is it a habit? How do we not punish the lie, but treat the failing of which it is symptomatic?
0: Well, so the interesting thing, and this just hit me, is she's talked, we've talked about that any number of times, and she's used lying as an example throughout this book as an indication uh, of a defect in character. Yep. So then she gets into, uh, she's she, she plagiarizes a bunch of stuff from Professor no, G. Doesn't. Stanley Hall. She, she plagiarizes doesn't. the headings.
1: No, she doesn't. He did not head his thing like that. I was reading – I found the article.
0: Oh, OK. The footnote she wrote says she plagiarized it.
1: It says she plagiarized it?
0: She said the headings are from Professor Stanley Hall's classification. I mean, no, she didn't plagiarize. I'm putting that word in her mouth. She stole she, his ideas. She took
1: the headings from his classification. He he doesn't – he has kind of headings, but it's 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 interesting how they're not one for one.
0: That is interesting.
1: So it was an article called Children's Lies. And um, Stanley Hall was an extremely prominent um, psychologist. He created the demand for the scientific study of children and the field of child psychology. He earned the first, in, in 1878, he earned the first psychology doctorate awarded in America. Wow. And when he graduated with his doctorate, there were no academic jobs available in psychology because he was the only one with a doctorate in psychology. (laughs) So he went to Europe. But anyways, the definition of a useless degree. (laughs) You'll graduate with a degree that no one else has. So there's no work for you to do. He founded the American Journal of Psychology. And was appointed the first president of the American Psychology Association. I'm sorry, the American Psychological Association. And he wrote this article.
0: So she takes this article and breaks it out into is it nine different? Eight, six.
1: Oh, my word document put an extra thing in here. Okay. Yeah, it's six.
0: Well, it's it's six. She had she has six things that she pulled out from. Uh, professor hall's article
1: so a note about this real quick it was a survey of about 300 children city children of both sexes mostly from ages 12 to 14 years old and they were interviewed by teachers privately and indirectly so designed to avoid issues and no children were found destitute of high ideals of truthfulness
0: Interesting. So it's a, it's a list of why does a good child lie?
1: Why does an average child who is mostly truthful lie?
0: Yeah. So we have six reasons and I don't know how deep we want to get into each of these reasons.
1: Well, the pseudophobia is, you know, they, they lie to protect themselves from lying. I I might've done something.
0: Is pseudophobia the fear of lying?
1: It is the purported irrational aversion or fear whose existence is as yet unproven.
0: Okay. So a phobia is an irrational fear.
1: Of something that might so not be true. So a
0: pseudophobia is a fear of something that might not be true.
1: Or might not exist.
0: Right. It's, it's a fear of falsehood. Mm-hmm. And so out of a fear of falsehood, you're you might tell a lie because you're afraid that You might be telling a lie.
1: To go a little bit deeper in his his article, he said it's a mental state that becomes in some so neurotic that every statement, even to a yes or no question, uh, I think or perhaps was either added mentally, whispered or out loud, and nothing could prompt a positive, unqualified assertion. He placed it among many other morbid fears that prey on unformed or unpoised minds.
0: Well, and when you add that to – and I'm going to skip ahead here real quick. When you add that to uh, the deceptions of imagination in play due to an unfed imaginations lesson in truth telling – it's quite the heading. <laughs> but when you, when you add that to where she gets to a little bit later where she says the child's active imagination thought up a scenario – and the child believes it to be true, because the child has such a vivid, active imagination. So when you add that, or when you when you put the vivid, active imagination together with pseudophobia, then the child can come up with all kinds of scenarios where the child might not actually believe that they're lying. No. Interesting. Anyway, uh, long story short, that's that's pseudophobia, and a bit on. Uh, Number five, imaginative lying.
1: The lie heroic.
0: Faithfulness to a friend is a far higher virtue in Tom's eyes than mere barren truthfulness.
1: He says uh, the state in which lies are justified as means to noble ends.
0: So lie to get your buddy out of trouble.
1: Uh, Lie because you're doing good for the society, good as a whole.
0: Right. L- little white lies that help everybody.
1: Well, and this is not not lying for the other persons. The, the burly boy who by false con- con- confession takes upon themselves the penalties for the sins of the weaker playma-
0: playmates. Because mm. he can take the punishment because he's big and burly.
1: Or girls who know that they're the teacher's favorite, so they claim to be the authors of the misdeeds instead of the ones who are in, in dis disfavor for the with the teacher. Right.
0: So the, the so the teacher won't punish the favorite one. Yeah. The favorite one will take on the responsibility. hmm
1: The the nobleness. Interesting. The, the quality of heroism's almost epic magnificence. The sin bearer's gracious lie seems to pass out of sight. Which it's still a lie, even if it's for uh noble ends.
0: Yeah. So that's the heroic lie. And then the next one is truth for friends lies for enemies. It is quite natural for a child to believe that truth is relative and not absolute, and that whether a lie is a lie or not depends on whom you are speaking to.
1: One of the things he mentions in his article is no cases were more frequent than where in answer to a friend's question If something or act that they did not particularly admire was not very nice or pretty, they found them saying it was it was hard to say no and compromised on kind of nice or pretty enough. When a strange pupil asked if they would have no trouble with their conscience, the girls were more addicted to this class of lies than the boys. Interesting. All children felt it find it harder to cheat in their lessons with a teacher that they like.
0: So the next one is lies inspired by selfishness.
1: He said, the greatest number of lies in our collection are prompted by some of the more familiar manifestations of selfishness. He has the example of in a game where, you know, you you move a ball a little bit in croquet or miscount of tallies. And so the, where the, the prize is great, cheating, dexterity and cheating is sometimes regarded as a legitimate qualification. So, Lies of this kind, prompted by excitement, are so easily forgotten when the excitement is over that they rarely wrinkle. School life is responsible for very many, if not most, of the deliberate lies of this class. And then this lies of selfishness goes on to, you know, the list of headaches or nosebleeds or stomach aches to get out of school. Or
0: or it's bedtime and the child needs to pee.
1: Four times in ten minutes. Mm -hmm. We don't. I'm sorry. We deal with this. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: our children, Absolute truthfulness. Our right? children never do that. Uh, so the next one is the deception of imagination and play. And imagine let's, let's them. Up real quick.
1: Back to selfishness and going to Charlotte Mason instead of what Professor Stanley's oh, All okay. Well said. Sorry. Cure the first, cure the selfishness, and the lying disappears. And so she goes in to talk about how to cure selfishness. And it's hard, but it can happen. So initiated and sustained by the grace of God. And, and she wants you to convey a stimulating idea about the heroic effort of being selfless. Again, back to the everything goes back to character.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do you grow character is through an idea. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then we talk about the deceptions of imagination and play. And this is something we talked about a little bit uh, in relation to one of the other ones. But this is one where the child has such an act of imagination that her imagination becomes truth to her. And they say that uh, she says for this one, the parents and not the child are in fault. The probability is that the child's ravenous imagination is not duly and daily supplied with its proper meat of fairy tale in early days of romance later. So the child needs to be fed, the child's imagination needs to be fed so that the child can turn off their imagination for reality.
1: So they know the difference. They know the boundary. Well, okay, yeah. They're, so that that the um at the same time the more imaginative the child the more essential it is that the boundaries of the kingdom of make believe should be clearly defined
0: right so the child will will learn to be able to live in reality and also in imagination
1: be able to separate fact from fiction yeah and he says it's control and not its elimination is what is to be sought in the highest interest, in the high interest of truthfulness
0: So the last one she talks about is pseudomania, and this is one I didn't look up, and so I'm not sure what she's talking about here, pseudomania.
1: Pseudomania, the definition was feigned insanity, a mental disorder in which the individual alleges to have committed a crime but has not, or the pathological impulse to falsify or lie
0: so an impulsive or pathological liar. Mm-hmm. Okay. And We're,
1: and like she was saying there's there's the signs to look for where they're they're looking up and down where when they're making up the story as they're telling it mm-hmm. to you. And and he says accessory motives, you know, the love of applause, money, etc. are at first involved, but later what we may designate as a veritable pseudomania supervenes, where lies for others. And even self-deception is an appetite indulged directly against every motive of prudence and interest. These cases demand the most prompt and drastic treatment. If withdrawal of the tension and sympathy and belief in the earlier manifestations, and if instruction and stern rep- reprimand are not enough, there is still virtue in the rod, which should not be spared. And if this fail, then the doctor should be called. Hmm. So... This this is not something to mess around with in his in his opinion.
0: Well, and she's she she talks about it as if it's a very serious thing as well. Mm-hmm. This is seemingly the most serious ailment that comes through in a lie that your child can have, and you need to go to any extent to make this right
1: because it's it's lying for the sake of lying, right? For the thrill of lying.
0: So the pathical lo- the pathological liar. Mm-hmm. who just lies because it's a lie
1: and the counter to this is giving outlet to their full self to their energies both physical and men- mental to not not making the girl have to win esteem just by being who she is she mm-hmm. she is esteemed and and like he said it it might need doctors intervention to stop.
0: Well, because it might be a chemical imbalance in the brain at that point. Yeah. It it might be that there is something physically wrong. And, And I'm one of the slowest to say that a doctor should be called and brought in. I think we talk to doctors too quickly for children. We have a rash of children that all of a sudden have attention deficit disorders. But – and this is a conversation Crystal and I have had any number of times when talking about pregnancies. Uh, We had – our first three kids, Crystal was at a, a birth center. And then for the twins, we were at a hospital because there was risk. And so the conversation that we always had was childbirth is such a natural thing. It should be natural. But we live now and not 500 years ago. And medical advances have happened. So, if there are issues, if there are problems in the pregnancy, that's when you go to the hospital. So, this is this is the same. Yeah, try try and fix that pathological lying, but don't but be a, don't
1: be afraid to seek help. Yeah, don't
0: be afraid to seek help. Uh, be it be it uh, counseling at your church, be it counseling from a friend, be it uh, a therapist therapist going to a therapist. Whatever that help looks like, don't be afraid to do it because, because it's there.
1: So she goes on to these, this couple of other classes of lies, which her definition here, lies of malice, she has in parentheses, false witness. And in the 10 commandments, one of them is you shall not lie. And the... King James, I believe it says, you shall not bear false witness.
0: Mm -hmm. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor.
1: So in this classification, all these other lies are not in that. This is a lie of malice. Bearing false witness is a lie of malice.
0: Well, because we're talking about a courtroom setting.
1: So do the Ten Commandments not apply to the imaginative lying, the... Um, what were the others? The lie heroic? The lies for friends? Or is that quibbling over words?
0: I would say that's a lot of quibbling over words. But – and and really this is where I'd want to read the Hebrew and talk to an actual biblical scholar. Because, I didn't look
1: into it at all. It's just
0: – I don't know. It's a thought that came to you just now. Yeah. Um. I don't know because the in the King James – and the King James is typically the most uh, literal transa- translation. It says – Uh, Bear false witness against your neighbor. And then we've kind of dumbed it down to say just lie. Well, bearing false witness, there's the courtroom sense of that statement where to bear false witness is to have the lawyer ask you a question. Did you see him do it? And you say, yeah, I totally saw him do it, even though you didn't see him do it. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, that's the courtroom definition of it. I'd be hesitant to say though that the rest of those examples don't fit. And the reason I would be hesitant to say that is because when Jesus talks about the law in the New Testament, he doesn't talk about the action of the thing. He talks mm-hmm. about the heart of the thing. It's the why that's the problem, not the, the act of it. And that is the principal difference between Judaism and Christianity. Judaism is interested in the action. What did you physically do? Christianity is interested in the why. What did you think? What were your emotions? Mm -hmm. Why did you do the thing? Why did you think about doing the thing? And that's straight from uh, Ben Shapiro. That's that's how he that's how he kind of defines those two. Because a lot of people want to lump Judeo Christian values in together, and there's a lot that fit. But but that's the that's the defining rod. So when when you pull that apart and you say, okay, so what's the heart behind bearing false witness or or lying? It's going back to Jesus summed up the whole law in the two commands: is love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength heart soul mind and strength I butchered the crap out of that but then he also says uh, love thy neighbor as thyself or love love your neighbor as yourself and that's the golden rule and so that that is the the full encompassing of the law mm-hmm. and so when you when you take the commandment to not bear false witness with the treat your neighbor as you would have them treat you, I think that really solidifies that that en- that encompasses all of these things. Now, the imaginative lie, does does the child really know that they're lying? And if they don't know that they're lying, can that really be a sin? Yeah. That, that gets into a whole other ball ballgame that I don't want to really get into.
1: I, I like that expansion clarification where – regardless of what the specific was, if it was specific in the Hebrew, false witness, bearing false witness, and only that specific type of lie, where where it's expounded and expanded to include everything in the heart by Jesus. You know, if you are angry at your brother, you've committed murder. Or if you... Was it look lustfully? You've committed adultery where he he used those two examples where it it could be, you know, if you have lied uh, about where the shovel is, you have bared false, born false witness or or something like that. Mm -hmm. Where that's that's just one of the things and not specifically expanded in scripture. Right. So thank you.
0: Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. That's that's interesting. So she goes on, she says uh, that children must be trained in truthfulness. And she says, it is well, however, to commend the subject to the attention of parents. For though one child may have more aptitude than another, neither truthfulness nor the multiplication table come by nature. The child who appears to be perfectly truthful is so, because he has been carefully trained to truthfulness however indirectly and unconsciously it is more important to cultivate the habit of truth than to deal with the accident of lying which i thought that last statement was was fascinating it's more important to cultivate the habit of truth than the accident of lying so so again going back to the imaginative child because like I said, I, I'm kind of, I, I don't know what to do with that one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's really sin or not because the child doesn't realize they're doing it. So that's an accident.
1: Well, and I know she talks in in home education about the exaggeration. Um, you know, the child that comes back and says, the horse was as big as a barn. And the mom goes, was it really? Mm-hmm. Exact. You be exact with what you're saying.
0: The horse was as big as a barn that was five feet tall and <laughs> weighed four hundred pounds. It was a very small barn. So yeah, so the accident of lying. I I thought that was a that was a fascinating phrase that she had.
1: It it goes to back to like a garden analogy. You know, if you have cultivated a good yard, your grass is super healthy. Then there's no room. For the weeds of lying to grow.
0: And if they do, they're noticeable.
1: They're easy to spot and pick out. Right. And take care of.
0: Whereas if you have a nasty weedy yard, good luck.
1: Because, like we've mentioned before, it's not enough to remove a bad habit. You must replace it with a good habit.
0: Right. So a yard that's full of weeds and no grass. If you just weed it, well, now you're left with dirt. What's going to grow? weeds
1: yeah talk to your brothers about that one.
0: Oh, yeah their backyard this is why i lived in an apartment when i lived on my own
1: so there you go what is truth
0: it is more important to cultivate the habit of truth than to deal with the accident of lying Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.